0: Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. Lord, your people need help to hear your word and heed your word in what might feel like a flyover text. There's so much going on here. There's so much grace. Help us see it. Help what I've prepared to be helpful. Help my heart to be in line with this word even as I preach. May we go out from here having heard and being ready to do. And for anybody who is here who has not yet yielded their life to the only risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, would they look through this text and see Jesus and so believe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What is the horizon of your hope? What's the farthest down the future that you can see where you're placing expectation and where you're saying, God, meet me there. If you're like me and you enjoy a good road trip when you pull up your Google Maps or your Apple Maps or whatever you have and you plug in the destination... I enjoy the detours, I enjoy the journey, but there's something about the ocean that's really nice and makes you want to get there, even though you're enjoying stuff along the way. Last summer, we had, our, we had the ocean in mind on our way to Maine, and then we had Minnesota on mind as we made our way back through Canada. Wherever we stopped, whatever detours we took, we had our hope set on the horizon. Today in our text, and I hope you're with me in the text, Genesis chapter 46. There's a pew Bible in front of you or in the seat back. Um, I don't remember what page it's on, but you should be able to find it. It's pretty close to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to remind ourselves a little bit of the journey that Jacob has been on over really over a hundred years of his life. Crisscrossing back and forth over the ancient Near East and the promised land, And we've seen his hope be dashed. We've seen him be disappointed. And we've seen hope be rekindled, especially as Joseph has come back on the scene. And we see that Jacob's eyes are still on the horizon. He's been convinced that a loved one is dead, and now he realizes he's alive. Do you remember some of these things? It is my son's robe I'm going to go down to the grave mourning. Simeon is no more. Joseph is no more. And you're going to take Benjamin from me? No. If harm will come to him on the journey that you're going to make, you're going to take my gray hairs down with sorrow to the grave. May God, the Almighty, grant you mercy. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And then what we just saw in the text last week, Joseph, my son is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Those words set up our text today. And we have to ask the question as we launch into the text, is Jacob's hope solely on the horizon of I get to see my son? Or is it past that? as he goes really into exile from the promised land. At the same time, we're also gonna ask questions about our own journey. This hope that had died inside of Jacob and got rekindled as he realized his son was alive has a parallel in our own lives. We who like Jacob are exiles outside the promised land on our way to it, as the New Testament tells us. So I'm gonna pray we're going to dig into this text together. So God, grant grace to me. Help me to be faithful to your word. Help your people to hear. Um, as I feel a measure of pain this morning and sleeplessness, would you sustain me? By grace, in Jesus' name, amen. So look with me in Genesis 46. First we see departures of grace here in the outline. Genesis 46, verses 1 through 7. So Israel, that's Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So there's four things I want to note here, and then a plus one. The prep time was really fruitful, and this might be the longest sermon ever preached at South City's church. It won't be. It won't be. It's, be. it's going to be faster than that. But it's going to feel like a fire hose here for a second, because there's a lot in these seven verses. So first, I want to remind you a little bit of the geography of what's going on. Beersheba has been the significant location in the history of the patriarchs. So we did this a few months ago, we're gonna turn the sanctuary into the promised land and the surrounding property into the ancient Middle East, all right? So if Beersheba is in the promised land, it's kind of on the south end of the promised land. It's about where the camera is right there. Jacob, uh, anywhere from 70 to 100 years prior, has left the promised land, leaving Beersheba in Genesis 28, and he went way, way, way across the Jordan, like the wall there, across the little uh, back driveway, onto the weeds in the back 40, go to Padan Aram to find himself a wife and he did and then he came back and he didn't settle in Beersheba apparently immediately but he left the promised land going that way early in his life and now he's on his way over to the parking lot of Holiday Inn and the uh, the metro stop over here which is Egypt the land of Egypt so Jacob was in Beersheba the last time in Genesis 28.10, at least that we're aware of. Abraham had made a covenant with Abimelech, the leader of the Philistines at Beersheba in Genesis 21. Isaac settled there in Genesis 26, but apparently Jacob didn't upon returning. So in Genesis 28, he hits Bethel. Jacob hits Bethel. That's the place where he puts his head on a rock. It's a pillow, but then he turns it into like a, sort of semi-altar and then he leaves and God comes to him in a dream as he's about to leave the place of promise and he tells him I ain't no territorial God where my presence is bounded by the borders of my land like all the other gods around you I go with you wherever I want to and he went with him and he came back And now, on the cusp of leaving the promised land for the last time in his earthly life. Another dream. This is like departure gates. When you're leaving your home country or entering a new place, and someone comes to you and says, it'll be okay, I'm gonna go with you. I will be with you. So, why would he hesitate to go to Egypt if he's heard that Joseph is there. And this leads us to the second thing. God tells Jacob, don't be afraid. Why don't be afraid? Well, there's probably a handful of reasons. One, Jacob is at this point 130 years old. I don't know how many of you are 130, but I can imagine if I was 130, I wouldn't even want to get in a car on a bus or a bus, much less a camel or you know, a wagon or whatever. So, I mean, he's reaching the end of life. He doesn't know how much longer he's going to live. But then, too, he's aware of a couple of things in his background and in his history. First, his father had been told, do you remember this from Genesis 26? There's a famine in the land at the beginning of Genesis 26. And his dad is told, don't go into Egypt where there's apparently food. Stay here in the promised land where there's a famine. and I will take care of you. Perhaps, Jacob is thinking similarly, but he probably also has in mind that his grandmom almost became a part of Pharaoh's harem in Genesis 12. Egypt is not necessarily a safe place for the offspring of Abraham. And so it's a big deal when God shows up and says, don't be afraid of going into Egypt. I'm going to be with you. An intervention by God is what's needed to convince Jacob to go. Does God still intervene today? Does he? Is this only for the patriarchs? Way back when? I'm not asking, have you had any like interesting dreams after you had a Chipotle burrito or something? And we're gonna spend time interpreting them. God has spoken. How has he spoken? You can say it louder. How has he spoken? Somebody's holding it up. The word of God. Does God still intervene today? He does. He still speaks. He still listens. Our God is an intervening God. And he tells us he will be with us, which we're going to talk about. Note here third, what God says in this dream. I myself emphasized in Hebrew will go down with you. The fact that God's people are not left without his presence just because they're not in his place is massive. Like I said, not a territorial God. And then last, most extensively, look with me carefully at Genesis 46, verse 4. These are the words of God, reassuring Jacob. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Go down to Egypt and go up where? Usually when we talk like go up, go down in relationship to geography, we're thinking north, south, east, west. That's not the way the Bible talks about topography and geography. It's about like how high something is or how low something is. The promised land is higher than Egypt is. So going down, and going up again is in relationship to the promised land, okay? So this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember out of Eden, there flowed four rivers? And what did they do? They went down to water the whole earth. Eden was a high place. We're going to keep going into Exodus, and where does God meet his people? On a mountain. So the promised land is higher than Egypt is. So when God says... I'm going to take you down to Egypt. I'm going to bring you up again. He's got the promised land in mind. Now, it appears, if you're just looking here, like, oh yeah, Jacob's going to go down and he's going to come up and he's going to be in the promised land. But that's not what happens. Where does Jacob die? In Egypt. He dies in Egypt. Genesis 48. He tells his son that uh, he's going to die soon. Genesis uh, it's somewhere in my 40 something something here it is forty-eight twenty-one. there it is uh jacob tells joseph i'm about to die having never returned to the promised land so in what sense is god going to bring jacob back up to the promised land well in genesis 49 jacob says don't let me be buried here in goshen we're going to talk about goshen in a second Take me back to the cave where my grandparents, my parents, and Leah, my wife, are buried. I want to be buried there. What's the horizon of your hope? Why does Jacob want to be buried in the promised land? Or why does Joseph say to his brothers in Genesis 50, 25, make sure... That the word gets passed on from generation to generation that I don't want my bones to stay in Egypt, but I want them to go back to the promised land. Such that Moses in Exodus 30, or 13, 19 is careful to exhume the bones of Joseph and to take them with him. Why? I think the New Testament gives us a pretty big clue as to what's going on. So I'm going to invite you, keep your thumb uh, in Genesis 46 and turn forward with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read nine verses. Hebrews chapter 11, verses eight and following. This gives us a mindset into the, like gives us a glimpse into the mindset of the patriarchs. What were they doing traveling all around the ancient Near East? What were they hoping for? What was the horizon of their hope? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out and went to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, And him, as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way, make it clear they're seeking a homeland If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Or very specifically to our text this morning, skip a few verses to Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, like previewing that they were going to leave Egypt, and gave directions concerning his bones. Giving directions concerning his bones is an act of faith. There's a hope that the patriarchs have, not chiefly in the narrow strip of land along the Mediterranean, but looking through it and beyond it to a city whose founder and maker is God. They're looking past the earthly promise to the new heavens and new earth, this is why God makes a promise. I'm going to bring you back, Jacob, even though it's after he dies. And all the journey, God has been with him and will be with him. This is a hope of resurrection in Genesis 46. Not just simply, hey, make sure I'm buried in the right spot. Like I want to be I want my earthly remains to be next to those that I love. It's past that. It's beyond that. Do you have that kind of hope? When you think about those that have passed on, when you think about your own death, when you think about your plans for how you want your death to be handled, are you thinking about, I have a hope. There's a resurrection coming. Now, there's one other note that we can make here. It's the plus one. Sorry for the fire hydrant. We're trucking along pretty quick here. Okay, one other note. All right. Uh, You ever been surfing? Anybody surfing? Surfed before? Got a couple surfers in the back. I tried it one time. Do you think I stood up on the surfboard? Yes, no? I did not. I fell multiple times. It was really bad. Others of you uh, were in here with me and you did stand up when, when that happened, when we went out and visited the Brunos a few years ago. I can't surf for whatever reason. Now, we should note that in God's world, there's these calm waves call them rhythms, call them patterns that we see repeated over and over and over again. One of those patterns is a pattern of exile. A pattern of in the promised land, now outside the promised land. Now returning to the promised land, we call that an exodus, all right? In Matthew chapter two, it was like 10.50 at night last night. And my son was reading the text and he turned to me and said, is this like that thing in Matthew? And I was like, <laughs> what am I doing? Do I even know how to preach? I do, I, I guess. So like in Matthew chapter two, there's another descendant of Judah. Of, well, it's a descendant of Jacob of Judah that has a dream. It says, don't be afraid to go into Egypt. Remember this? Who is it? It's a guy named Joseph. Oh, Joseph. Interesting. That sounds like a pattern. And why does he need to go into Egypt? His son's life needs to be preserved in exile so that his son can come back into the promised land and do the work that God has called him to do. You know his son's name, Jesus. There's patterns in God's world that are really important for us to kind of catch a drift of and learn to like get up on the board and figure out it's gonna be really important as we continue in the bible and so we hopefully get to revelation next year this pattern of exile and exodus yes i had to go there i'm sorry all right now when we when jacob left Canaan the last time you're like when were you gonna get done with the first point daniel it's time guys we're done with the first point and the next two are are shorter Okay, when he, Jacob left, left Canaan the last time, when he was in Beersheba, he crossed the Jordan, he went to Padan Aram, one guy. Now, what's happened? He's leaving again, going that way to Egypt? Is it just one guy? No, God has kept his promises. So we see genealogies of grace, second point. And I am not gonna read that genealogy again. Good job, Bill, wherever you are. If you mispronounced it, you mispronounced it boldly. Good job. I do want to note one thing here at the very end. Verse 26 and following. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who are his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. So all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70 Why is that important? Is that just like a random factoid? Okay. In the book of Genesis, there's a load of genealogies, lots of genealogies. Most of them are descendant of this person, one descendant of this person, one descendant of this person, often tracing the line of Messiah. But there's one other genealogy where we get a person and their children and then their children. It's in Genesis 10, the table of nations, all the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Do you know how many names are listed in Genesis 10? 70. Why does Moses include all the descendants, including, like, including Perez's like, kids, so Jacob's uh, great-grandkids, so that it adds up to 70? Are you excited yet? Okay, this is mildly speculative, mildly But there's many ancient commentators that note this and a handful of modern ones that note this. Why 70 descendants and 70 nations? Is it like 70 v. 70? Fight! Like Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter? No, I don't think so. It's 70 for 70. Do you get get that? Why, Why have 70 descendants and then mention 70 nations? This parallels with the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that not only would his offspring become great, but they would become a blessing to the nations. So, 70 descendants for 70 nations. I think a symbolic way of saying, Israel is here for the sake of the nations, not only to come and compete with the nations. This is why I think... The promised land, this little strip along the Mediterranean, it's not off in the corner of like the Arabian Peninsula. It's like in between all these major superpowers. And for a thousand years, they've got to walk across Israel to go kill each other and occasionally beating up on Israel and occasionally Israel beating up on them. Why is Israel in the middle of everything? Well, I'm so glad you asked. This is Deuteronomy chapter four. I'll just freeform it here. Okay. How will the nations know how great and wise your God is? You're going to be among them and this law will be the wisdom so that they will say that he is glorious and great. Israel was not just there to bide time while they were getting beat up up on others. They had an evangelistic purpose in being in the promised land. They were a nation for the sake of the nations. Does that remind you of anything you've heard in the New Testament? The many descendants of Jacob were sent to Egypt by God so they might become an even greater nation, so they might become a blessing to all nations on the earth. They were called a nation of priests. They were going to stand between God and the nations in Exodus 19. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, That language, word for word, is applied to the church. The church, I think we can say, has inherited, if not all the promises to Israel, although there's a a conversation we could have about that, we'll talk when we get to Revelation, at very least inherited the mission of Israel. Whatever else we might say about the two distinct ethnic groups of Jew and Gentile, we can say that the church has a job today a blessing to the nations the church composed of Jews and Gentiles continuing to display the glory of Israel, as Israel did uh, the glory of God as Israel did in the old covenant proclaiming to the nations the glory of Yahweh the church is a nation a holy nation in 1st Peter 2 for the sake of the nations do you feel like you're on mission do you feel like you have a purpose? A purpose to display God's glory wherever you might go, in this room, outside this room, at your work, in your school, among your friends, among your neighbors. So the genealogy points to a purpose for Israel and it points past it to a purpose for us. But how will the nation comprised of these 70 and their wives? become so great as to possess the promised land and become this light to the nations. This is where we get to our last point, the arrivals of Greece. In chapter 46, verses 28 through 34. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. Since I've seen your face, I know you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even till now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So finally here we see grace in the arrival of Jacob and his family. Three quick, quicker than our first point, things to note. Note who is leading the brothers on behalf of Jacob to reach Joseph. Not Reuben the firstborn, not Simeon, not Levi, Judah, fourthborn. Judah has taken, apparently the lead of his brothers, the wayfinder, leading his father back to Joseph. Judah's the one that put Joseph into slavery in the first place. Do you see this redemption? Do you see? Here's this redeemer prototype pointing past himself to someone else, someone who will come after him. Second, Note Joseph's tears on his brother's shoulders from last chapter, and now it's Joseph's tears on his father's shoulder. It says, for a good while. Uh, The catharsis that Rick pointed us to last week, where we see through Joseph to the mercy of God, we should see that here too. Do you see past Joseph to the moment when we're going to weep on a father's shoulder and all will be well? And then, third, Last, note Joseph's plan and probably why he doesn't wait in closer to the Nile, but goes out and meets his father in Goshen. He wants his family to settle there. And he doesn't so much as concoct a lie. You can read the text a certain way that way. So much as say like, hey, when you have this audience with Pharaoh, make sure you really emphasize what's going on. My son and I were redirected across the United States multiple times by an airline that will not be named. And uh, I remember kind of at the end of myself, after the seventh or eighth uh, customer service rep, and we were going to end up sleeping in a hotel, or uh, in a, actually on the floor of the airport, after like 28 hours of travel, I was just like, oh, I'm so tired. I just, I feel like name of airline has kind of messed this up. And the customer service rep was like, so what you're telling me, sir, is you feel that our airline has messed up your itinerary. (sighs) No, I just, I just need to sleep. No, what you're telling me, sir, is that our airline has messed up your itinerary. I just need to go. So what you're telling me, sir, is, oh yeah, 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 the airline messed up my itinerary. Well, let me see what I can do for you. And two hours later, we were in a swanky hotel. It's kind of nice, actually. It's kind of low-key happy to get redirected around the United States with my son. Maybe not happy. Maybe that's the wrong word. This is the same kind of thing. Joseph is saying to Jacob, when you make sure you tell them what's going on, you got livestock, you got sheep, you got other things. We've seen this. They've, uh, over the course of their journeys in Genesis, we already saw that Abraham was super rich in livestock. In Genesis 13, he had to separate from his uh, cousin Lot and they had to go two different directions. Jacob got even more livestock while he was with Laban up in Paddan Aram and he came back and combined those with Isaac's livestock. So this is loads and loads of not only people but livestock. And Joseph really wants to emphasize this is going to be a problem for the Egyptians. They're going to want you to land someplace else. If you look at modern maps of Egypt, just like look at a satellite map sometime, you see two Green areas in the middle of a desert. The delta? Not the, the delta, and then the Nile that goes down from the Mediterranean. Most commentators and scholars believe that the Delta, or that Goshen, is in the easternmost part of that uh, delta that's up close to the Mediterranean. So this is a very fertile land, and thus a shrewd plan. By Joseph. Not a plan to like curse, not a plan to usurp, but a plan to protect and provide for his family. And as part of God's bigger plan, he's gonna use this to grow Israel even more and make the offspring of Jacob great. We should know too, while the promised land is languishing, and the people of Israel are eventually going to be called there, for now, in this latter part of the famine, they're called to the most fertile part of the land. And what are they going to do there? They're going to tend it and keep it. They're going to tend and keep and grow and live life. They're going to cultivate it, garden it, perhaps you might say. Where we are called in our exile is similar, at least by analogy, if not directly, although I do think there are some biblical reasons that we can point at this. Where do you find yourself? Do you feel like you've arrived at a promised land where you're at right now? Or do you see yourself with Jacob, like Jacob, Jacob as a prototype of this, in exile? Where God has granted you to grow a garden to tend and keep where you're at. Now, maybe not a literal garden, okay, depending on your, your setup, depending on how dead your, your yard is, et cetera, but... Uh, a garden of grace, as it were, a place where God is present with you. I think about this constantly. I frankly think about it constantly with my kids, my family, but also all of you here at South Cities. What kind of legacy am I leaving? So if at 10.50 at night, my son was like, hey, Matthew 2, at like 10.55 last night, my wife was like, hey, Valley of Vision, this really connects well with this point. So... Thank you, Natalie. This is a prayer from the Valley of Vision that I think is really appropriate. It's a prayer that uh, Puritan prays, I don't remember which one, for the sake of um, their own home and their own church. Let those that are united to me in tender ties be precious in your sight, Lord, and devoted to your glory. Sanctify and prosper my domestic devotion, instruction, discipline, and example that my house may be a nursery for heaven, my church, the garden of the Lord, enriched with trees of righteousness for your planting, for your glory. I think that's the heart that we should all have. Our homes are like like nurseries. Like, eh, not that that kind of nursery. Like nursery, like, you know, uh, those those few flowers up front at Target. But our church should be like Bachman's, all right? Our church should be a place like like overflowing with good grace of our God. Our house a nursery, our church a garden. So in conclusion, here in our waning little bit, the legacy that Jacob left is one where it appears that over the course of his life from Genesis 28, uh, you know, I'll follow God if he proves himself to me. To Genesis 46, He has proven himself to me. And it's an increasing confidence in God's place, God's people, in God's presence, enough so that Jacob wanted to be buried in that promised land. Compare this to earlier, compare it to later. What's your journey been like? Do you despair about where you're at right now? God's grace is still for you today. Is the hope, is the horizon of your hope just a little bit down? You can only see a little bit ahead? Let this text lift your eyes and look farther, look farther over the horizon. If you're a Christian, you follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. Do you realize that you're an exile in this world? You're in Minneapolis or you're in Minnesota, you're in Russia or you're in America, you're headed to the cornfields of Iowa or you're hanging out down in the panhandle of Florida, you're in exile. And you're called to garden. You're called to seek God and his glory for the good of the nations that you're in, the nations you're among. Have you mistaken this world for a home? Have you? There's a newer, better homecoming that yes, will be this one stripped free of sin. One whose founder and maker is God. And if you're not a Christian today, you come and I say, Jesus is Savior and Lord. And you go, I don't think so. Or I'm not really sure. I'm so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. We want to talk to you. We do. Because the horizon of your hope goes no farther than the point that you breathe your last. My aim in this text is to help you see that the horizon of your hope can be higher. Eternal life with God as part of God's people in his place, in his presence forever. How can that happen? By faith in the only slain and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a life perfect that we could not live, died the death we deserved, and rose to break death, and is reigning right now, and will come again. And he offers himself to you and says, he offers to you a swap. Your death and your sin For my life and my righteousness. Because Jesus said it this way I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, though she dies, yet will they live. Do you believe that this morning? I hope you do. All of this, the story of preservation, the story of exile, Brings us to the communion table. Our God comes near to us, we weep on his shoulder, and there's a feast to be had. And Christians, for thousands of years, have had this little symbol to point forward to a feast that's coming. So when we do this, this is not like somehow out of line with what we've just done in hearing the word what we've done in singing the word, what we've done in praying the word, we are now coming forward and in a sense, communing with God who, with Jesus, who is the living word. So a few words about communion here. If you're here this morning and the words that I just said, you know, you're not sure that Jesus is your savior. You're not sure he's your Lord. This is not a meal for you. This is a meal for those that are part of Christ by faith but you can go out from here and that story have completely changed for you. Where your hope doesn't end at the moment that you breathe your last, but your hope endures past that to when you'll breathe again in a new heavens and new earth. So I'd ask you, even while everybody's standing up here and it feels kind of like, oh, the pressure to come forward and take it, please stay. No one will judge you. Second, If you're here this morning and clinging to sin that you just don't want to bring to God, you'd rather have your sin than be in clear communion with God. I'd encourage you to stay back. Paul has warnings in 1 Corinthians that this is a dangerous thing to do to partake of communion when you just know that you'd rather have your sin. And then for a third group of people, if you're particularly embittered this morning against other Christians specifically, you feel like you're walking in bitterness and you're not willing to seek to make that right. You just don't feel like that's, maybe you feel like it's not even possible right now. First, I'd encourage you, ask God for grace. Maybe it'll be okay for your conscience to come forward. And if not, I'd encourage you just stay, make a commitment to make that right. But are you a sinner this morning? Say yes. You're a sinner this morning. Are you in need of God's grace? Yes, Yes, you are. Is God for you despite your sin and loves you? Yes. And so this morning, if you falteringly, not perfectly are clinging to Jesus by faith, wanting to set aside those other weights, this is a meal for you. I'd invite the ushers to come forward. Raise your hand if you would rather stay in your seat and meditate or if you're unable to come forward, they'll serve you the elements. I'm gonna read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11 and then you can come forward when you're ready. Paul says to the Corinthian church, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come forward and proclaim with us when you're ready.